Bibles to Hosea chapter 6 this morning. Hosea chapter 6, and we are going to be, with the Lord's help, looking at verses 4 down through the entirety of chapter 7 this morning. So, Hosea chapter 6, verses 4, down through chapter 7, verse 16. Speaking of hymns, that second to last song we sang, My Jesus, I Love Thee, recently, a while back, I guess it's been now, heard the story of a pastor in China after the takeover of the, the communist uh, regime. Uh, they came to a village and there was a pastor there in a small church and they demanded that he recant and that he renounce Christ and he would not. And as a result of that, he was buried alive. And as he was being buried, he was heard singing, My Jesus, I Love Thee, and uh, died buried alive singing that hymn. And uh, I just cannot uh, imagine uh, the, the precious oil of worship that was poured out before his Savior that day as he died singing, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 down through seven sixteen. Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, would you uh, please stand and join me in reading the Scripture this morning. The Word of the Lord says this, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away clearly. Or early, I'm sorry. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a, har- uh, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restored the fortunes of my people." When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness, they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies... They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hands with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven. As they approach their plotting, their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a a cake not turned. 
Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim became like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not hear, or they do not cry to me from their heart. When they wail on their beds, for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are, dece- they are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, As we examine your precious word this morning. May we begin to understand. The heart of idolatry. That is so very present in all of us. Father you are worthy. You are holy. You are righteous. You are above us. You are have sought us. You have redeemed us. Father, you have blessed us. Just as you did the nation of Israel. But Father, oh how prone our hearts are to wander away. So now, Father, may we learn from the example of Israel the tendencies of the pagan heart. Our propensity to idolatry. May we understand what went wrong in them so that we may avoid it by your grace. Father, help us to flee to you, our Redeemer, King, our God. May we shun sin and flee to the Savior. And we pray this all for the sake and the fame of our Lord Jesus' name. Because He has made access, Father, to You for us by His death and resurrection. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask that You would do these things for Your people this morning. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. We are not unfamiliar with this scenario. We get a phone call. From a longtime friend who is in the midst of a crisis, perhaps in the midst of a divorce after what seemed like many years of a happy marriage. They call and they begin to weep and they begin to tell us what is transpiring in their life. And inevitably, within a few moments of receiving that call and beginning to have that conversation with that person who is hurting. These words come from our lips. What happened? Or perhaps we say it this way. What 
went wrong. Or we run across an old friend who at one time had been passionately on fire for Christ and uh, saturated, it would seem, in the gospel. And now uh, to run across them years later, we find that they have rejected everything to do with God. Everything to do with the church, everything to do with the gospel that they once claimed to embrace. And again, we ask the great question, what happened? Could even be at a national level, especially now at a time when so much seems to be going so wrong in the culture in which we live. And we reflect on the founding of a nation that started so well, using God's word as a model so often, to suddenly find ourselves in a culture that not only does not use the Word of God as a basis and a marker for direction, but actually opposes and oppresses those things that we once held dear. And we find ourselves asking again, what happened? What went wrong? Well, we're far enough into the story of Hosea now in this sermon series that we are able to ask the question of the nation of Israel, what happened? What went wrong? You who started so well, what has occurred that you would be so sidetracked? What would cause a people so blessed, so gifted to go astray from a God like the God of Israel? How could they go from being given every advantage Recipients of the covenant to now recipients of God's wrath. Perhaps for us this morning, the question more pointedly is this. How can we, who have been so lavishly loved by God, turn our affections away from Him to mere trinkets, to idolatry, to fleshly affections? In an interesting statement predating even the covenant and creation of the nation of Israel, God deals with the sin of all men, addressing the universal question, what went wrong? After all, the problem that Israel faces in Hosea is the problem we face today. We find ourselves living contrary to the redeeming love of God at those points in our life when we find ourselves in a position of sinful rebellion. We rebel against the redeeming love of God when we instead love ourselves. Chapter 6 and 7 this morning give us that window, that glance into the heart condition of Israel that we might ask the question, what happened to them? What went wrong with them that we might learn and that we might avoid the same mistake? Chapter 6 and 7 this morning, as we look at it, I want you to understand that it is a heart-wrenching view from the perspective of a loving God as He watches His people that He created, that He made covenant with, that He blessed, that He received confirmation from of their love and commitment to Him, turn in absolute rejection. This is God's reflection on what they have done to Him. God has been faithful, just as Hosea had been a faithful, loving husband to Gomer, despite her many infidelities. And now God, like Hosea, 
laments over the absolute and unloving rejection of his bride. And we ask the question, what went wrong? What is missing now in the life of Israel that at one point was present with them? Let us hear the lament of God this morning. Let us take to heart what God Himself is saying. And we begin by hearing that lament in verses 4-7 through of chapter 6. So will you look at the text this morning? God begins as a heart-wrenching, a heartbroken, redeeming God. And He says this, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Because now it is not only the northern tribes involved in the idolatry and rebellion, it is the southern tribes as well. They have now affected their cousins in their rebellion, in their idolatry. You remember, it began in Ephraim and spread to the north, and now it has spread to the south. And look what he says, What will I do with you? Because your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. You know, brothers and sisters, because God is so lofty, because He is so transcendent, because He is so unlike us in His holiness, in His otherness, we can easily make the mistake of gravitating to the brightness of His radiating glory, the largeness, the awesomeness that is God, and we can forget the personal nature of God. We can forget the the imminent and closeness of God as well. And God is both. And while God is lifted up above His creation, separate from it, He is not at the same time coldly detached from it. Because God mourns. God laments. God has emotion. God demonstrates deep personal care at times. God demonstrates at times righteous indignation. God at times demonstrates great pity. God demonstrates wrath, joy, pleasure. And so God is not a cold, abstract deity... He is a transcendent deity who is closely and intimately connected with His people so much so that when they stray, God is grieved. Brothers and sisters, when we stray from God, God grieves. God laments our condition. God laments our rebellion against Him. And this portion of Hosea reminds us that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible indeed has a personal element to him. In his lamenting, we find the condition of the nation. And the rest of the passage, after what I've read just a moment ago, will go on to explain to us what went wrong so that we do not grieve the heart of God. You could read through the rest of Scripture and understand that God the Father here grieves. 
but also Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, grieved. We find Paul's instruction in Ephesians chapter 4 not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so we understand that God in all facets of the Trinity can be grieved. He is not incapable of this emotion. But do we understand that the action of God's creation, you and I, can indeed evoke this strong response of emotion from a gracious deity? Listen to the words of Scripture. In Genesis 6-6, the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. This is preceding the flood. And He was grieved in His heart. Because of the wickedness of Noah's day, God was grieved. In Matthew 3-17, we have the Father now speaking to the Son. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we find the pleasure of God in Christ demonstrated. Deuteronomy 9.20 The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him because of the sin of Israel. Matthew 18.13 Jesus telling the parable of the lost sheep. You remember the story. And the man goes out, doesn't he? And he's got, he's got uh, 100 sheep and 99 come home, but there's one missing. And so the shepherd, concerned over the sheep, goes out to find the sheep and listen to what he says. And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 90 and 9 which have not gone astray. We see the heart of God, that he rejoices over redeeming the one. Psalm 41, 11, David says this, By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. And so we understand that God, again, is capable of being pleased. Now, brothers and sisters, if we consider the love of God, the care of God, from the beginning, this passage is an absolutely embarrassing scene. When we understand the love of God that completely unrestrained, completely unprovoked, all of His own gracious initiative has created mankind. And He has continued to sustain mankind. And He has chosen Abraham out of the land of Ur, out of idolatry, of no merit of Abraham's. God says, you're going to be my man. And he calls him out, and out of Abraham's seed, God says, completely on his own initiative, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, and I am going to bless you, and I, to you will fall the law, and the covenant, and the prophets, and I'm going to give you and your people every advantage, Abraham. What love is that? Did Abraham deserve it? Certainly not. Do any of us deserve it? Certainly not. But because God is a loving God and His care is without fault. This passage becomes even more intensely embarrassing. Understanding that love and now the rebellion ought to shame every one of us that having been created and sustained 
and cared for by God that we would at any point become idolaters in our heart. Listen to God's perspective. Listen. For those of you who are parents, listen. Picture your own children that you gave birth to, that you clothe, that you feed, that you love doing this. In verse 7 of chapter 6, we find this. He created them. He says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Who's Adam? Adam's the first man. He's the one God formed from the dust of the ground. God's saying, I I remember. You're just like Adam. I created you. I made you. You would not exist if it weren't for me. You transgress my covenant. After all I've done, you go against me now. But it's not only that, but it is the the reality that, that after Adam, God prevented their destruction. You know, I think we miss the point of God's grace in the Old Testament so many times. I want you to think, God created Adam. Adam transgressed the covenant. And from that point on, after the fall, things continued to spiral downward at a breakneck pace. So that by Genesis chapter 6, just a few chapters later, wickedness had so infested the earth that God wanted to destroy it. That's something. Humanity merited destruction. Complete elimination because of their wickedness. Because of their sin. But we find this gospel reality in Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God, in an unmerited way, demonstrated His grace to Noah and his family so that all humanity would not be destroyed. Everybody else died, but not Noah. Why? Because God chose to demonstrate His grace to Noah. We find that event, and not long after that event, in Genesis chapter 11, we find again that after the flood, the whole world had come together on the plain of Shinar at the Tower of Babel, and they said, we're going to build a tower that reaches into the heavens. We want to be like God. We're going to go to where He is, and God says very clearly that at that time, there was nothing that mankind was not capable of doing Because they all had one language. There was complete unity. But it was unity. Founded in rebellion. Not in worship. Not in correct doctrine. Which by the way. Be very careful of the unity debate. Unity might destroy you. If it's not unity around the truth. It almost destroyed the tower. It didn't. It did destroy the tower of Babel. But it almost destroyed all of mankind. They were unified. And God looked down and He says, because they're unified and because they are bent on rebellion, 
There is nothing that they cannot do if they put their mind to it. And so in order to spare humanity from being completely eliminated, God caused mass confusion in the creation of language so that mankind would never again work together in such a way that he would be forced to destroy them. You see the grace? God could have come down at Babel and said, that's it, I'm done. But he doesn't. He says, I'm going to confound your language. I'm going to scatter you around the earth so that I am not forced to destroy you because of your rebellion. That is a gracious God. That is a loving God. God then calls the nation of Israel in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 to be his special people that will carry his covenant promises and plan of redemption to the nations. He comes to Abraham, he says, Abraham, you're my guy. Israel, you're my nation. But the purpose of your existence is that so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Oh, these people had a great history. They had a great legacy of grace and redemption and usefulness in God's hands. And then they go into slavery in Egypt. They buy into the idolatry of Egypt. And God could have very well said at that time, I'm done. It's finished. But he didn't. No, he called his people out. He preserved them once again. And he brings them out. And then he brings them in Exodus 16 and 17. He brings them into the wilderness. And he says to them, there are pagan nations living in this place. And you are to go into that place. And you are to conquer them. And you are to declare as you go, Jehovah Nissi. God is our banner. God is our strength. And Israel marched into a land and destroyed their enemies. They found, as they got there, that they were inheriting a land that had already been cultivated and planted, and they reaped the harvest, yet they did not sow. They lived in homes that they didn't even have to build. And God says, I did all this for you. You are my people. He spoke to them. He gave them a law to reveal Himself to them so that His people could know Him and in knowing Him, worship Him. He says, listen, it's not enough that that I do these things. You've got to know Me. And so He reveals Himself. And we sit here this morning and we scratch our heads and we say, how could it be that a people so blessed could rebel so greatly? God had done so much for them. How is this possible? We need to ask the question of ourselves. A people so blessed, so redeemed, how could we ever allow our affections to stray? With all these blessings, the response in Israel's case was rejection. How they did it, what they did, is a long story of sin that was tolerated, then adopted, then practiced, and then loved. Israel didn't fall into the worship of the Baals overnight. They lived in the midst of a people, and it was just okay. We'll just tolerate your sin. It's okay, you know. It's no big deal. 
You, you worship your God, I'll worship my God. I'm not going to infringe on you. We're not going to try to be the light to you that God created us to be. Just do your thing, we'll do our thing. And then it became that as their children intermarried, it became that we, well, you know, is it really that bad? Okay, all right, just this one time, this one idol, go ahead and bring it into the house. We'll worship Yahweh, but we'll worship this too. It's okay, we'll just kind of do this syncretistic thing. And then they began to fall deeper and deeper into its practice to the point that they began to love the idol and hate their God. It eventually led to the point that the nation of Israel forgot who God was. They forgot what He was like. They forgot what He had done. And in God's lament in chapter 6, He goes all the way back to the beginning and He starts with Adam. And he begins to trace out the covenant-breaking tendency of fallen man. That includes us. And he laments his rejection. He laments that Adam, like us, broke covenant that we rebel against the redeeming love of a gracious God. They broke covenant with Adam. They had it. Now listen, here's why it doesn't make sense. Here's why it's so absolutely stupid about sin. Adam had it all, and he left for less than he already had. Adam had every advantage, every perfection, Everything he could have ever dreamed up and he left it for less. He left for a lie. That's what sin does to us. Israel continued to do that. Because of that, they murder each other. We look at verse 8 in chapter 6. The Gilead is a, a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. You remember we talked about this when God laments the murders earlier in Hosea. It is one murder stacked on top of another. The Hebrew picture of the language is literally this. It's a chain that one murder is connected to the other. And we remember as we study the history of Israel at this time, we find that they were a people who had king after king after king after king in a short period of time because they kept assassinating each other. God laments because they are murderous people. They concoct premeditated crimes, he says. It's a city of crime. Shechem. This is the place you go if you want to be a criminal. Even the priests were part of it, we read. They murder. They commit premeditated crime. And they play the spiritual harlot. God laments this. God recalls the great history that they had and how they left it all for less. And his heart bleeds and his heart breaks for the people that he poured himself into and yet they rejected him. Hosea spells out the nature of that rejection with what is happening. And so here, brothers and sisters, this morning, if you can imagine receiving that call, that call of a crisis, that call of distress, 
from one of your friends that you thought was doing very well, that had every advantage, and you ask the question, what happened? How did it go so terribly wrong? Here's how. These people missed the essentials. Number one, they missed a love for God. They missed loving God. Of all the things that matter to God, none overshadow a faithful love for Him. The, listen, the pillar of Israel's existence is not the Ten Commandments. That, that's fleshed out. But do you know what the pillar of Israel's very existence was? It is found in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know what God wants more than anything else from us? He wants our love. He wants our unceasing loyalty to His name's sake. Look in the text this morning. Look at verse 6. I delight in loyalty. The word literally is translated loving kindness. I delight in love. In this loyal, abiding passion for me more than I do sacrifice. You see, it's kind of like the law. Moses came and he said, here's the law. There was a problem with that. The Pharisees made it very external to the point that they could keep it. And Jesus says, when he comes in the Sermon on the Mount, does he not? That you have heard it said that you shall not murder. I'm going to make it impossible for you to avoid the ramifications of the law and this outward sacrifice. I say that you can't hate from your heart. You've heard it said that you can't commit adultery. Well, that's right. We've never committed adultery. Well, let me inform you, Pharisees, how this really works. You lust in your mind. It's just as bad. I demand love from the heart. I demand absolute loyalty, not external sacrifice. You see, what they were doing in Israel at the time is they were still offering sacrifice to God. At the same time, they were worshiping their idols. And God says, no, 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 no. You choose. It's either loyalty to them or loyalty to me. But you can't have both. There was that missing essential of love for God that was all-consuming. Listen, the problem for Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 was not that they lacked works. They worked. You know, Ephesus, if we held Ephesus up today as a church and we brought Ephesus here to Midland, Texas, and we looked at Ephesus, we would say that is a model church. They have got programs. They have got everything you could possibly want. That is a mega church. That is a superstar church. Ephesus must be where it's at. And you know what God says to them? You're busy, but you're barren. You have lost your love for me. It's become external. It's become programmed. It's become uh, something that you can just go through the motions and do. And you do not love me. And unless you repent and strip everything else away and come back to the point that you are loving me, nothing else matters and I will remove your status as a church. 
God desires our love and loyalty to Him more than anything else. Brothers and sisters, do you have a driving love for God this morning? Not for the external conformity to where you look good, to where you can play the part of a church member. Do you have a passion for God Himself that is driving you? You can mask a lot of things, but you can't mask love. God sees the heart. And when we miss that love, we become pagan, religious in form only, deceiving ourselves. Remember the condemnation that Samuel delivered to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God says, go kill Agag. And what does Saul do? I'm going to go capture Agag. No, no, no. I think we got our k sounds messed up. I said kill, not capture. And Saul says, yeah, but he created a lot of heartache for us. We're going to kind of torture him a little bit first, and then we'll kill him. God says, I want you to go kill their sheep. Well, we'll go capture the sheep and then creative idea number one for the day, we'll use those for sacrifice. And God says, no, no, you don't understand, Saul. To obey out of a heart of love is better than to sacrifice. You did not obey me from a heart of love. It's not only a missing love for God, but it is a missing knowledge of God. He says, I delight in love. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Remember the word knowledge. We talked about this is, is not just an intellectual understanding. They knew God's name. They knew some intellectual facts about Yahweh. They knew some intellectual facts, but they did not understand or know the ways of God. He says, on this point, you're lacking. You, 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 go to this, you go to the tabernacle. You, you offer sacrifice. You may even have the Torah up on your wall, a cute little you know, engraving up on the wall of your tent. You, you know me, but you don't know my ways. You don't know what pleases me. You don't know what I love and what I hate. And he rebukes them for that. But here is another tragic point, brothers and sisters, that lead to our idolatry. Look in chapter 7, verse 2. God says, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in and bandits raid outside. Now listen to verse 2. Here is how you get to the point of idolatry and rebellion against God. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. And they are before my face. They were missing the fundamental characteristic of living in the fear of the holiness of God. They didn't fear God. They didn't consider that God was aware of their sin. Let me ask you a question. Now, I'm not going to ask the 
superficial question of did you sin last week, the answer is yes. But let me ask you a question. When you sinned, were you acutely aware that God was watching you? Well, Brian, I didn't do anything. Yeah, but God sees your thoughts like you're doing it. Were you, was I, acutely aware that as we were sinning, God was watching? That was Israel's problem. (laughs) We'll sin, but God doesn't see it. He's kind of confined to the tabernacle, so what we'll do, we'll go out to the groves on the top of the mountains to to do our idolatry, and God will never know. And God says, here's the problem, they don't consider that I see them. And not only do they not consider that I see them, they don't consider that I remember. We have this idea today that I think, and I think if we're honest, we sin and God doesn't kill us. And over the course of time as we continue to sin, we kind of think, well, we got away with that one. Not with God. We've been told that God is love, and certainly if He's a God of love, then He would never keep a list of wrongdoing against Him. Oh, but He's a holy God. And He does not wink at sin. And the nation of Israel had gotten so calloused in their sin, they didn't believe that God saw, and if you did see, they didn't believe He really cared. Because after all, how many generations had it been since things had gone wrong for them? I can't even remember. I mean, we've been out of Egypt so long. (laughs) Who could say how long it's been? So we're getting away with it in their minds. And God says, they don't consider that I remember. And they are encompassed about. And they are totally surrounded by and inundated by their sin in my eyes. Brothers and sisters. Did what we do, is what we did, I should say, last week. Is what we did something that we would continue to do if God Himself, with all of His burning holiness, stood before us? Would we continue to do it? Isaiah walks into the presence of God and he just melts. Woe is me. And Isaiah was probably outwardly the most godly man alive in his day. And he walks into the presence of God. And he's not sinning at the time. But he becomes so acutely aware of the sin tendencies and the sin that he was harboring in his own heart in the presence of God that he literally melts. And he says, I am unclean. Do we live in that reality? Israel did not. Look at the extent and the volume of their sin. He says, first of all, it's all around them. They're encompassed by it. But then secondly, it is intense. It's like a fire that uh, doesn't even need to be stirred up. It's like a baker who has the fire. And for those of you who have cooked outdoors on a campfire before, 
you know, that the fire starts hot, but then it kind of dies down and you've got to continue to stir the embers and keep it hot enough, especially if you're doing something like Dutch oven cooking or something like that. You've got to keep the fire hot. And he says their sin is so intense. It's like a fire that doesn't even have to be stirred. It doesn't ever go out. That's pretty intense. They, they never had to add anything to it. It just burned that hot. He said it was enduring. Look in verse 6 of chapter 7. He says, for their hearts are like an oven. As they approach their plotting, their anger smolders all night long. This is going on and on and on. It's consuming. Look what it says. It consumes their rulers. Reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king built the fire, but the fire was so hot it consumed the people he sent to throw them in. God says the, the sin of my people is so hot that it burns up the kings who started. It consumes the rulers. All the kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. That's the other condemnation. That's the other answer to the question. How did it happen? What went wrong? Well, they stopped calling on God. At the end of their debauched living, when they had sown to their idolatry, when their kings had all been assassinated, when they had all fallen, when they were about to go into captivity to the nation of Assyria, when the country was in absolute disarray, they still refused to call on the name of the Lord. That reminds me of 9-11. In the pastoral world, there was a lot of chatter. After 9-11 happened, people, pastors, this is going to be the thing that sparks revival among America. Surely 9-11 meant, and you know the first Sunday the churches were full? I mean, we had, as a nation, record attendance the Sunday after 9-11. Do you know how long it lasted? One Sunday. Surveys showed that the next Sunday was back to business as usual. And all of the talk of God bless America and the spiritualisms and all of the, this kind of thing quickly died. It's just like Israel. She, things couldn't get any worse, it would seem. And yet, even then, they did not turn back to the Lord. In our lives, we sin and we sin and we sin. We rebel against the goodness and the holiness of God. And we can become so hardened that no matter what happens, we don't call on it. We just say, I'll try harder. I'll do better. I'll try this self-help path or this medication or this, that, or the other thing. We'll just do whatever we can. We don't repent. We don't turn back to the Lord and call on His name. Reminds me of the story in the New Testament of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember the story? The rich man feasted sumptuously every day. He was well to do. He had need of nothing or so he thought. And that rich man died. 
And he went to hell. He went to that place of torment. And he looked up and he saw Lazarus at Abraham's bosom. He saw Lazarus, in other words, in heaven. And he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, would you please send someone? Would you go tell my brothers about this place that I am in so that they will repent and that they will turn to your God and they won't come to this place? And what is Lazarus' response? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they refuse to hear the word of God, though one rise from the dead, they will not hear him. Yeah, but Lazarus, that's a miracle. You were dead and now you're alive. Yeah, there's a bigger miracle. God spoke. Let them hear that. Let them hear the word of God. That is more miraculous than if one really did rise from the dead. Surely, something so cataclysmic would cause them to repent. It didn't work in Israel's history. It would not work with Lazarus. The Word of God could and would restore It would, like a surgeon's scalpel, separate the tumor that the body might be healed, but they would not appeal to that. They would not call on the name of the Lord. And then the last thing. They lacked a separation for purity. Use the word separation today. That is considered a dirty, dirty word. Tell someone in the course of discipleship, you need to be separate. What? Oh, Ah, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We've got to be like the world if we're going to win the world. Israel wasn't winning anybody. They looked just like the pagans, talked like the pagans, worshipped like the pagans. And yet no pagans were being converted. They were lacked separation. You see, God didn't tell them to live in an isolated way, but He did tell them to live in a separated way. God didn't say abstain from the nations. No, God put them right in the middle of all the pagan nations so that they could demonstrate the glory of God to them. He didn't say run away. He said go live in the middle of them, but don't be like them. Israel got it mixed up. They went and they refused to separate from the pagan culture around them. They assimilated into it instead of winning them out of it. And there is a difference. God wanted His people to live in a fallen world as a light, not the bush that hides the light. There are many ways in which this happened in their history. There are many ways it can happen to us, brothers and sisters. And look what he says. In verse 8 of chapter 7, Ephraim mixes himself with with the nations. In other words, Israel became like them. You know, when you take a cake and you put in the egg and, I don't know, the flour, the salt, and the sugar... After you stir it all up, you can't separate it. It's all one thing, right? It's a cake. Before, it's a bunch of individual ingredients. Now it's a cake. You don't separate the cake out. 
And God says Israel's like that. They've so interjected themselves into the pagan culture around them, into the rebellion against God, they can't separate themselves out from it anymore. And look what he says. It's like a cake not turned. Ladies, you know how frustrating it is. Company's coming over. You put the cake in the oven. It burns on the top. You stick the toothpick in and it comes out raw on the bottom. And you're frustrated. It didn't cook evenly. It didn't cook all the way through. It's not what it was supposed to be. And what do you do? Throw it out. Same in Israel's case. So how does God respond quickly and we're done? God spoke words of truth. Look back in 6, verse 5. I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. There's one tool to cure this condition. It's the word of God. It's the word of God that pierces like light. In Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? What a gracious wounding. That God would speak, that He would burn, that He would crush, that He would reveal the prophets afflicted so that God might redeem. His word through them was supposed to crush. It was supposed to purify. It was supposed to be rebuild, uh, be rebuilding in its nature. His word through the prophets was light. What is light? It's brilliant and it is pervasive. It is piercing and it is blinding. It illuminates and eventually light transforms. It was clear. As God spoke what He commanded and desired. Brothers and sisters, today in our lives we must not stray from the Word of God. It alone will crush it alone will reveal, and it alone in the end will heal. And by the way, that not only goes for our lives, that goes for our gospel witness to the world around us as well. Let us never shy away from saying what God's Word says. People don't want to hear it. It does divide. It does crush. It does inflict wounds but they are gracious wounds for their healing. Let us be faithful with the word of Christ, the word of God, to proclaim it. But then what would God do other than speak? He would prevent them in uh, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. They are like silly dove. Uh, they don't have a lot of sense. Dove aren't the smartest birds in the world. They sit over my car and make all kinds of messes thinking I won't eventually do something about it. You can hunt them all day long. Uh, I love dove hunting. It starts in about a month. And you can shoot at them and you watch that dumb bird circle back around and try to come back to the same spot. They're not real bright. There's a guy down there with a gun that took off a few feathers last time. But what do they do? They come back. He says, that's like Israel. And because they lack the sense and because they are going to continue down a road that will ultimately destroy them, I am going to throw a net over them and prevent them from hurting themselves. Think of it as a spiritual straitjacket. 
I'm going to strap them down. I'm going to send them into captivity. I'm going to break them so that ultimately they do not destroy themselves, i.e. the Tower of Babel. God would have had to come down and destroy mankind. So what does he do instead? He throws the net of confusion of language and scatters them. Oh, God is being gracious to Israel here in preventing them. Verse 13, chapter 7, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. And listen to the promise. I would redeem them. I would. I would forgive them. I would welcome them home in the language of the prodigal son. I would roll out the red carpet, slaughter the fatted calf, bring the finest clothes, and put the ring on their finger. I would do that for them. Because that's my nature. That is who I am. They will not repent. They won't turn. Instead, they speak lies against me. Now that is amazing. Not only are they rebelling against God, look at what they're doing. They are lying about God. They are blaspheming God. It's not that they're just saying, you know, I'll take my way, not your way. It's just a choice, nothing personal. I'm just going to go this way, do my thing. I'll do it my way, you do it your way, we're good. You know, that type of thinking always ends with blasphemy. It's a slippery slope. And in Israel's case, that's what they did. They eventually begin to lie about God. The redeeming nature of God, in spite of all that they were doing to Him, still says this, however, I would redeem them. Remember what redeem means? Redeem something means to buy it back. Remember the story of Hosea from a few chapters earlier? Gomer was his wife. She belonged to him by right of covenant relationship. And yet she goes and sells herself to another man. And in redeeming love, Hosea goes and he buys back again what was rightfully his to begin with. That's what God does. We are His. Israel was His. And she went and sold herself into the pagan religion of her day. And God says, even though she's done that, even though I don't, I, I shouldn't have to do anything, I'm going to go again and I'm going to buy her back. Even though she rightfully belongs to me. I'm going to go pay the price to bring her back. God says of us in the New Testament that we are redeemed. We are God's also by right of creation. And yet we've sinned and yet God comes in Christ to buy us back from the slave market of sin. What happened? 
We forgot those things. They forgot those things. And they turned against God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its piercing and its crushing. It's illuminating and it's burning. Father, may we examine our own lives to see where we are falling short of a love for you, of a knowledge for you, of an awareness of your holiness and your gazing into our life to see every sin, no matter how secret or small. And may we be repenting people. May we be people who receive daily, humbly, the grace to repent of our sin that we might not stray from you, that we might not end in a crisis as Israel did. God, we have to pause and we just fall on our knees and we praise you because you are a God of redemption. That you redeem worthless sinners who have walked away from your blessing and your covenant. Just as Adam did, so do so do we. But Father, now that you have the second Adam, your son Jesus has come and he has made all things new for those who put their faith in him. May we, Father, be careful not to leave the blessings that are in Christ, that we would live rightly and righteously and in a holy manner before you. Father, do it by your grace. We cannot do it in our own strength. We are wholly dependent on you, Father, even to sanctify us and keep us from sin. But do it for the sake of your Son. Purge and cleanse us that we would look like our Savior. That we would be found faithfully loving you. And we ask that you would do this, Father, for your glory and for our joy. Amen.